Focus on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas, and recently I got mugged. It was quite unexpected, both shocking and brutal. And just because the mugging was mental rather than physical didn't make it any less devastating because, you see, I was mugged by a moment of overwhelming doubt. Perhaps that's happened to you. Sometimes a season of doubt doesn't come as a result of a crisis or a time of intellectual wrestling or during a conversation with an atheist who skillfully undercuts your reasons for faith. It just comes out of nowhere. It happened when I heard of the death of a distant friend. He had battled cancer with great courage, and when he finally received the diagnosis that his condition was terminal, he calmly prepared himself and talked of how much he was looking forward to being with Jesus. Now, I didn't doubt his sincerity, but when I heard that he was gone, in a moment, I suddenly felt a fear that his and our whole faith construct was implausible and empty. Was he really still existing or just dead? Believing in a life hereafter in that moment seemed absurd. Now, some might think, Jeff, aren't you letting the side down with all of this talk of doubt? But Christian leaders are called to be examples, not be those who project an image that gives the impression of endless certainty. That's not only true and inauthentic, but it may well alienate those who struggle with uncertainty and doubt. So let's be honest and talk just a little about doubt and faith as well. When I first became a Christian, I thought that ministers never had to wrestle with doubts about faith. They all seemed so shiny, so holy, and so very certain. I didn't realize that their vocational choice didn't guarantee them, which can make life difficult. It's hard to fulfill one's duties as a minister of the gospel while wondering if what we boldly proclaim as truth is actually true at all. Imagine it. Sorry, PCC, but I'm going through an atheistic phase. Any chance of a couple of weeks off? Doubt is a mosquito that I can never quite kill. And if past performance is anything to go by, I will never successfully swat it this side of the New Jerusalem. Most of the time, doubt rumbles rather than roars, the vaguest trembling of the ground that I stand on, distant, irritating, troubling even, but not turbulent enough to create an earthquake that Richter would be interested in. I don't lose my faith. I just mislay it occasionally. But every now and again, I have a full-on faith attack, which is more like a tsunami than an earthquake. Faith attacks strike without warning and are triggered by random happenings. Sometimes it's the superstitious statements that fellow Christians come out with that make Christianity suddenly seem quite implausible, and for a moment, the whole faith construct seems as rickety as a coffee table made by a fifth former in the woodwork class. You can't outgive God, some say. Really? Then why don't we give every penny that we possess and become utterly destitute, at least temporarily, if that's really true? Others say God is totally in control. No, as far as I can see it, he's not. At least not in the sense that everything that happens is because he wants it to. 
If that's not the case, then why do we pray your kingdom come, your will be done, if in a bizarre case, sarah, sarah kind of way, everything that happens is because God wills it. Things have gone wrong, so you must have been doing something right, is often one of those cliches trotted out by those who have an excessive view of spiritual warfare that may well mean that Satan is in fact camping in my bathroom, a roaring lion crouched in the facilities. I'm healed, says the person who very obviously isn't, but they say it because they think they're letting the side down if they don't. Or it can be, as I mentioned earlier, a brush with death, which I had recently with that passing of that very close friend. When I heard of his death, the Easter message seemed empty and I didn't feel comforted, but instead felt that I was desperately just trying to be hopeful but in that moment, it wasn't working. The possibility of there being another place somewhere else in the universe that he had traveled to, it all seemed about as likely as the Easter Bunny being a real-life carrot eater or Santa breaking speed records with his sleigh. Just wishful thinking. My faith was not rammed by a weighty locomotive filled with brilliant new atheist arguments, but shattered by the hint of a satanic snigger. Surely doubting that God exists or fearing that he's abandoned us if he does is a fundamental part of the human condition. If I'd choreographed the Calvary event, I wouldn't have had Jesus yelling, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, as one of his last statements, even though prophecy was being fulfilled. I'm not being irreverent, but that didn't sound too good, did it, seeing as Jesus had announced that he and his father were one. Very bad as a parting shot, I'd say. I wonder what those who heard him say it made of it, without a team of forensic biblical commentators standing by to explain it all in three points of alliterated sermonic clarity. Perhaps Jesus was fully identifying with us in our lostness, bewilderment, and the occasional feeling that heaven might be ignoring us at times. On the cross, not only was he challenging the power of death, but identifying with us in the experience of hopeless, desolate life. Three days later, he rose to let us know once and for all that we are not abandoned or left destitute and that death itself is rendered incapable of separating us from love. And that leads me to another parting shot from Jesus. Before dying, he said, you've forsaken me. Before ascending into heaven later, he promised, I'll never leave you. My occasional faith attacks, where are you God crises, they don't mean that I'm a rubbish Christian, just another human being trying to get in step with what is true. One day, we'll see Jesus face to face and doubt will be banished. In the meantime, we don't enjoy that clear view. So if we occasionally doubt, it's just an indicator that we're not actually dead yet. Doubt is just part of the normal Christian journey. Yes, an unwelcome companion, but one that we need not fear. We're talking about doubt tonight. It's like an embarrassing itch for Christians. People talk about it in hushed tones. They worry that it might be contagious and worry that their reputations will be damaged irreparably if anyone knows they've got it. And it's very boring when an outbreak hits you. For me, Doubt sometimes comes when I'm in an atmosphere of great certainty, like one of those boisterous celebration worship meetings where, if you're careful, you can end up with a nasal rebore from a low-flying flag. You know the feeling. 
The chap next to you is headbutting a tambourine with a monotonous rhythm that is causing you to have fantasies about hurting him. The lady sitting in front of you is so ecstatic about being a Christian that she's had her hands raised high in the air in worship throughout the whole service, including during 20 minutes of numbing notices. And the cheery red coat type leader on the platform is gushing breathy platitudes into the microphone. Don't you feel the Lord in this place? He is here. The woman in front of you stretches out and positively touches the ceiling with her worshipping fingernails. The bloke next to you is gnawing his tambourine now with a rabid enthusiasm and you sigh, crushed for the moment by the burden of believing. Is all this God stuff true? Is anyone out there beyond the canvas of this tent or plaster of this ceiling? The other time when I get mugged by doubt is when flying. When I was preparing for this program, I was in the inside of a rather large jet aimed at America. I would be shortly dispensing large chunks of biblical teaching to an assorted gathering of rather nice Christian people, and I was hurtling through the sky at 500 miles per hour, my trajectory carefully navigated by computers, enabling Nigel, the pilot, I think they're all called Nigel, to announce the time of our projected touchdown to within a minute or two even though we were still 3,000 miles from our destination. But the laws of physics and the precision genius of computer chips do not govern my or your emotional and spiritual conditions. We can feel certain about our own ability to do anything useful. When I was in that plane, I felt less certain about my own ability to do anything useful for Jesus. I wasn't sure who I was doubting more, him or me. As I was wrestling with a rather bland chicken Caesar salad at 36,000 feet up, I found myself looking around the cabin and becoming increasingly unsettled about my faith, just as a result of surveying the backs of the heads of my fellow passengers. What is it that they did to cause this spiritual nervous tick to erupt in me? It was simple. They unnerved me just because of their normality. They sat and they nursed their plastic cups and appeared to have no concerns about holiness or morality, about the meaning and purpose of life or the life-exploding eruption that breaks upon a soul when it discovers that there's a creator alive and well at the heart of the universe, one who would know me. I saw no signs of fretfulness on their faces because of the niggling impotence of the church that professes Christ's name so boldly but sometimes witnesses to his life less effectively. No, they just sat there, living another day without apparent depth or significance, mesmerized by just eating. And for a moment, I envied them and felt that to believe all of the time is just too much like hard work. And then I began to really worry about myself in secret. My jealousy was truly wicked because... Flying in that plane, I was carrying in my bag a black leather-bound book that apparently announces that those people that I was envious of, many of them are perhaps lost. I berated myself. Do I believe this enough to do something about it? Was I truly convinced that these nice, pleasant people were really lost? And so I shook my head in vain, hoping to dispel some of the ether inside my skull. But it persisted, and for a good while, God seemed a long way off at 36,000 feet up. The plane zoomed effortlessly forward, 
a precision dart on course for its destination, but the cabin seemed filled with fog as I reached for the laptop. A few moments' reflection would cause me to know that actually, to live life for nothing, to merely survive, that's no blessing, but truly a curse. But on that flight, I felt battered by waves of uncertainty and disorientation. So why am I sharing all of this? Well, when it comes to doubt, there's no magic conclusion here, no slick recipe to banish doubt for good. But I just want us to realize that we Christians, most of us suffer from it once in a while. Again, one day we'll see Jesus face to face, and life in the twilight zone of believing will be over forever. But in the meantime, we live on the spiritual dark side of the moon. His face sometimes made distant and blurred by flesh, by life, by busyness, by fear. Resurrection will bring face-to-face revelation, and what a joy that will be. In the meantime, if we sometimes doubt, it doesn't make us grade C Christians or mighty pagans. It just means that we're human. As we've been thinking about doubt tonight, let's reflect on Thomas, that disciple of Jesus infamous for his capacity for doubt. He was having one of those days when he missed that famous meeting where the resurrected Jesus showed up. Who knows what Thomas was up to that caused him to miss one of the greatest episodes in human history? Was he working on his taxes or visiting a maiden aunt, lunching with an old friend? Whatever it was, it caused him to miss that meeting of all meetings. And then, as the other disciples who were there excitedly chattered endlessly about the awesome experience that they had, Thomas stoically assumed a posture not unlike that of a Victor Meldrew, muttering, I don't believe it. He insisted that unless he could be convinced that Jesus really was alive by sticking his fingers into his wounds, then unbelief was the barren place that he was going to park in. So there, Thus, the Christian church, always quick on the draw with the labeling machine, has dubbed him Doubting Thomas, which I think is a tad unfair. He certainly did doubt, and Jesus gently rebuked him for it, but he was also a brave man who had shown willingness to die with Jesus if necessary. Because of that doubting, Thomas is unlikely to be a winner in a I'm a disciple, get me out of here popularity contest. Peter, impetuous, fragile, usually wins hands down every time. That water-walking fisherman whose sprint across the surf was terminated by a bolt of fear is someone we can so easily associate with. I sometimes picture him hopscotching behind Jesus on one foot because so often he'd had the other foot firmly planted in his mouth. James and John might be favorites with the more macho types who like action thrillers, seeing as they showed an indecent enthusiasm for nuking an entire Samaritan village. And when it comes to popularity, Andrew might be a favorite of some because he was such a people person, immediately introducing his brother Peter to Jesus and then not getting irritated when his brother got nicknamed The Rock. But strange as it seems, I'd like to give a shout out for Thomas as an unlikely hero. And the reason is this. For Thomas, one of those days turned into one of those weeks. The repeated chatter between those who'd seen Jesus must have been tortuous, setting Thomas's teeth on edge. 
we read the story of another appearance of Jesus to Thomas, and so we know the happy ending. But for a while, he had no clue that this would happen. He had no promise that Jesus would ever appear again in a similar fashion. He may well have missed the meeting of his life. A whole week went by, seven days for him, stranded in the shadowlands. But then Jesus arrived again. And this time, Thomas was there, still showing up, his doubts unresolved at that point, his insecurities lingering. He was there. And for that reason, he is a wonderful inspiration. I don't think we give him enough credit for doing so. Thomas is surely the patron saint of those who are steering through the seasons when faith seems ludicrous, but they still show up regardless. And Thomas ended bravely apparently martyred by spears at the command of an Indian king. His willingness to die for Jesus was no hollow promise. So, hooray for Thomas. And if you're trusting God and still clinging to Christian community through one of those days, weeks, or even, God love you, one of those years of struggle and doubt, then a sincere, heartfelt hooray for you too. See you next week. Lucas on Life.